Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. A criminal complaint was filed yesterday here in Lataw County, charging the defendant, Mr. Kohlberger, with four counts of first-degree murder in addition to felony burglary. It has been a year since four University of Idaho students were viciously stabbed to death in a rental home near campus. But what does the prosecution have in their case against accused killer Brian Koberger? We sit down with Brian Enton, senior national correspondent for News Nation, to talk about the most damning pieces of evidence in the case. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Law & Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. We have covered this case extensively here on Sidebar, and it is one that has captured the attention of the entire world. It's kind of strange to think that it has been a full year since all this happened, but on November 13, 2022, Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Haley Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan were all found stabbed to death inside of a large off-campus rental house at the University of Idaho. Two other roommates were unharmed. There was a massive police investigation as basically the entire Moscow Police Department started looking for who could have done this. And it really rocked the entire community. And after about six weeks after the murders, police arrested 28-year-old Washington State University doctoral student Brian Koberger at his parents' home in Pennsylvania where he was spending Christmas break. He was actually a criminology student at the time. Now, they extradited him back to Idaho, charged him with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary. A grand jury looked over the evidence that prosecutors collected and indicted Brian Koberger. The state announced that it will be seeking the death penalty. Hey, Ms. Taylor, is Mr. Koberger prepared to plead to these charges? Koberger's legal team announced he was standing silent and Judge John Judge entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. Koberger also decided to waive his right to a speedy trial, which blew apart any chance of this trial starting in October, as originally planned. The accused killer is behind bars in the small town of Moscow, Idaho, currently awaiting trial. But the question now is, how strong is the actual evidence against him? Well, to answer that, let me bring in Brian Enton, News Nation senior national correspondent who has been covering this case from the very beginning. Brian is actually in Idaho one year later. Brian, it's great to see you. First off, what is it like being back there? And it's hard to imagine just one year has gone by. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it's really weird to think about it. Sorry, we're actually driving now. My producer's driving. We're driving over to where there's going to be a vigil um, on campus uh, later today. But yeah, it just feels kind of surreal. Um, you know, I think the town is still very much like coping with everything, uh, especially since, you know, the legal process is ongoing. The trial has been delayed. They thought maybe it would happen this year. 
it's now not happening. So it's kind of like everyone here is in this weird limbo. Like they want to try and move on somewhat, but it's really hard to do that when, you know, Brian Koberger is in the jail here and, and there's still this long court process ahead. Yeah, it's a little bit of a strange feeling. I'll tell you the first, I didn't think that a year from when he was arrested, we were going to see a trial. I'm not surprised by that. This case is quite complex. The death penalty eligible case. I think there's a lot at stake here. And that's what I wanted to bring you on, because if anybody knows about the evidence in this case, it is you. You've been doing terrific reporting. So let's go through some of the evidence here and what to make of it. I'm going to start with the DNA, arguably one of the biggest pieces of evidence that we know the prosecutors have against Koberger. Um, he's, of course, innocent until proven guilty, but the Latai County prosecutors, they need to have the goods if they were going to win the case. And you talk about the DNA. We know that authorities were able to make a familial match from the DNA on a knife sheath found at the crime scene to Koberger's father. They did this by collecting trash from outside the Koberger home in Pennsylvania. And then after Koberger was arrested, authorities took a cheek swab from him. And then the court documents reveal that the DNA recovered from the sheath is almost an identical match to Koberger. But Brian, the defense has been saying not so fast, right? They're saying that there, there's been a lot of fighting between the prosecutors and the defense over what's called investigative genetic genealogy, or IgG. Can you walk us through it? Yeah, it's it's a new science. It's, it's really interesting, the IgG, the investigative genetic genealogy. We were actually just in Idaho, like about a week ago for hearing about it. The judge acknowledged, like in Idaho, the way it was used in this case, he believes is is totally you know unprecedented so they're they're still trying to figure out how the science works in terms of like the judge is educating himself the defense and prosecution but basically what happened is when they got the knife sheath from the crime scene they had it processed for dna and then they put the dna that they found on the knife sheath in these databases these genetic genealogy databases so when they went initially and got the DNA off of the knife sheath. They then put it into these databases and searched for anyone connected that, that, that might have a family member, any sort of connection within a certain radius to Moscow, Idaho. So it started very, very broad. All of these distant family members of Brian Koberger. And then they said, okay, who can we find that would connect to these people that lives in the area. And that is how it appears that they narrowed it down to Brian Koberger. Um, but there's been a lot of fighting because the prosecution is concerned about all of the names within the, the database because all of these people who may not even realize that they're distant relatives of, of the Kobergers were part of the, the database that led and it led them to figure out that that it connected to Koberger, if that makes sense. Hey there, everybody. I want to talk to you about something that I am super excited about. Jedmatch is now sponsoring Sidebar. Many of our true crime fans will know exactly who they are. I actually interviewed their co-founder a few years back, had a chance to meet them at CrimeCon. When I tell you, I think they had like the most popular booth there, aside from ours, of course. But it was truly insane how many people were at their table. GEDmatch is the largest public DNA database, and since 2018, they have played a crucial role in helping law enforcement solve over a thousand cases. I'm talking the Golden State Killer, the NorCal Rapist, the Buckskin Girl, 
And you know what? It is really all due to you because you take a DNA test, you upload the data to GEDmatch, and you become a genetic witness helping identify serial killers or unknown descendants. It's 100% free to sign up and upload. And you also get all of these tools for your own genetic genealogy research, which is really cool. This is just a unique way that true crime fans can actually fight crime. So if you want to learn more about the Genetic Witness Program and how to join GEDmatch, head over to www.gedmatch.com sidebar or click the link in the description. So, so, Brian, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and my understanding is the judge has set a deadline of December 1st to get all of this DNA evidence in, to look at it, to see what can be used. There were actually some arguments that were made at a motions hearing on August 18th about this. My understanding was that the, that the state did uh, provide all the information about the uh, laboratory, we'll say the laboratory uh, DNA uh, that was, uh, that analysis was not related to the genealogy DNA. Am I mistaken about that? What are you saying that, that they didn't provide to you? Your Honor, in our third motion to compel, we had a section called standard lab discovery and that has to do with other dna profiles found at the scene um, they have provided full discovery for the sheet the dna found on the night sheet but not the other three unidentified male dna samples two from within the house one from outside of the house all right so if I'm understanding your, your question there or your uh, assertion that we're talking about three uh, potential uh, analysis of DNA that was not provided to you, but that has no connection to Mr. Kobe. Correct. Any response? Um, your Honor, we didn't realize this was going to be an issue today. We have given the defense <laughs> everything that we received from the lab. They've asked for DNA workups on other people. To the extent that they don't have them, they weren't done. Uh, we can't produce something that doesn't exist. We've provided everything. There's one outstanding lab report uh, that relates to the forensic examination by the lab personnel of the crime scene itself. We'll re be receiving today. That's the only outstanding lab report. Everything else, along with all the notes, is what there is and it's been provided to the defense. You know, I'm looking at this and I'm trying to think how much of a slam dunk is the DNA evidence because, Brian, it's my understanding. I've heard the defense may argue that there, this was a party house, um, that, of course, Brian Koberger was at the house. No wonder his DNA would be there. And it's possible there was other people's DNA um, maybe in, at that crime scene. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we, you know, we've known from the beginning that it's a party house that a lot of um, people went in and out of the house. The neighbors told us that from the beginning. What we don't know is if Brian Koberger has ever been to that house before. You know, there's so much with the gag order um, and the evidence that we don't know about at this point. And I think that could something that could possibly come out at the trial if they can prove that Brian Koberger had been to that house before for parties or something. We have no reason to think that but if that's the case i think that could play into for sure the the defense i want to move on to the second what i think is a huge piece of evidence it's brian koberger's cell phone pinging um what are some of the key pieces that prosecutors are going to go hone in on here 
Well, yeah, in the probable cause affidavit, it makes very clear um, that that Koberger's cell phone pinged multiple times uh, near the crime scene around the time of the murders, and that then um, it went away and then came back. There's some speculation, like was he was he concerned that he left the knife sheath there, um, and that's why he went back. We don't know, but but his cell phone definitely pinged in that area. Um, and what's interesting is the cell phone, according to detectives, appears to have been turned off around the time of the actual murders, which why would the phone be turned off right at that time? That's definitely something that, that the prosecution like, you know, highlighted in their probable cause affidavit. Um, Koberger's defense has said that Koberger liked to go for basically like drives and joy rides and, you know, would drive around in the night. Um, is that going to be like a possible defense or alibi? We don't know, but that's something that, that his defense has said in, in filings. And let me amplify that a little bit. So so you're right. I mean, they say then they look at the cell phone technology, which, by the way, in any case, defense attorneys will try to poke holes in how accurate is it. But what it seems to suggest is that he was pinged at his apartment in Pullman, Washington, just before 3 a.m. on the morning of the murders. The house is about 10, 15 minutes away from the King Road home. Um, the phone, like you said, the connection disappeared, came on two hours later, which, like you said, it looks like maybe it was possible that he might have turned it off. but. It, comes on again at 5.30 a.m. I think it's also interesting because you look at his phone GPS and it pinged at or near that house at least 12 times before November 13th, which, again, yeah. even if you go with that alibi that he was, you know, he took late night drives, he drove around the area, it's only 10, 15 minutes away, maybe he went to nearby bars. The fact that he was near the home, I think, is peculiar. Yeah, will it come out that he was, you know, like stalking the house, watching things there? Is that why he was driving by so many times before? I mean, we don't know that that's the reason, but they're very specific with the pings. Um, and, you know, that that's, I mean, that was a big part of the probable cause affidavit. So, um, you know, and, and the fact that the phone was turned off and, and a lot of, you know, the defense attorneys, like the, you know, the, the experts who I've interviewed over the last year, that's something that they always seem to like highlight, um, yeah. saying, you know, that's not good for defense, that they, that they feel like that's one of the big issues with the defense. Why was the phone turned off at the exact times of the murders? Suspicious, suspicious. I, I will tell you, it seems to me the only way they can prove that alibi would either be Koberger testifying and saying this is what he did, he would drive around, or B... Witnesses saying, yeah, I, I knew his habits. I didn't think, you know, it's the phone yeah. records. Phone records can only show so much, but they will call witnesses to say this is what his pattern is. Have you heard anything like that about who the defense might call to prove this alibi? No, and we've, you know, in all of our reporting, I've never really come across anyone in Idaho or in Washington where he was going to school and where he was getting his PhD that, like, was his friend or that hung out with him or that went on drives with him or that went out drinking with him. Like we've never come across anyone like that. It's always people who like, Oh yeah, he was in my class and he was kind of odd. So like, if there is a friend out there that can corroborate, you know, that he likes to drive around and stuff, it, we, we haven't come across anyone like that. Let's uh, move on to the third piece of major evidence against Brian Koberger, the car where we know that just about, what was it, two weeks after the murders, police announced that they were looking for this white Hyundai Elantra. It was like one of the only pieces of information that, re that they released during the early part of the investigation. Why is the car so important, Brian? 
Yeah, and that's all that they had to go on, at least with what they were telling the media for so long. So every day in the beginning, just coming out over and over again and saying, if you've seen the Elantra, if you've seen the Elantra, basically it was spotted around the house. There's even some surveillance video of a right near where the house is, where you can see the car driving by. Um, and they say that they've, you know, connected the Elantra to being at or near the crime scene at the time of the murders. Um, again, there's a lot we don't know because of the gag order and because so many of the documents are sealed. Like, it's so frustrating what they're reporting because, you know, we'll read one paragraph and then it, the rest will be blacked out. So there's a lot we don't know. But it, from what, what I've read, it doesn't seem like they found any physical evidence inside the Elantra. Um when they processed it again, that could just be blacked out. That could be part of the gag order. Um, but, but we know that based on surveillance video, they did connect the car, that car type to being in and around the area of the, you know, the house where the murders happened. Yeah. They say the car passed the home like four times between three twenty nine yeah. AM and four Oh four AM. They say that the car was speeding away 16 minutes after that time. So right around after the killings. And then you mentioned how they matched it up to him because a Washington State University officer spotted this white Hyundai Elantra in the parking lot of the apartment complex near campus. The car was registered to Koberger. And then one of the pieces of evidence that I don't think people talk about enough, Brian, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that later on the, in the day of the killings, like in the afternoon, there's surveillance footage from an Albertsons where you see Brian Koberger exiting that car, the white Hyundai Elantra. So the idea that he could come back and say, Somebody else was driving my car. I don't know. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, exactly. And the Albertsons trip is is one of the big mysteries. Like, There's so many things with this case that I think are, are going to come out in trial that we still don't know. And that's one of the things. And even interviewing Kaylee Gonzalez's parents a couple weeks ago, that's something that they're really interested in because we don't know what police know about him going to that store, what he was buying. Um, that's still like one of the things that everyone is really, really curious about. But yeah, it's, it's going to be hard for, I mean, it's his, you know, that he has that kind of car. So it's going to be hard for him to really distance himself, I think, from the car. And you mentioned the, the police officer in um, Washington state spotting it in the, in the parking lot. I'm also very curious, like the timeline behind the scenes, we still don't know, you know, based on the genetic genealogy and what they were mapping out and and tracing it down to Koberger, it's still a little gray of like, you know, did they know that they thought it was Koberger at that time? Did the mm -hmm. cop just happen to spot the car? Like, we still don't know a lot. I'm, I'm very curious what they knew and when, because covering it in real time, it was like, we know nothing, we know nothing. Then when the documents came out, we realized like they knew a lot, but we still don't know the exact 
timeline of what they knew and when. That's that a great point. Sense. That's a great point because we also know yeah. that Koberger and his father, they were driving this white Honda Elantra from Washington to Pennsylvania yeah. in the weeks before his arrest. Koberger was pulled over twice by law enforcement for speeding and tailgating. Here's a sample of that. Hello. How you doing? How y'all doing today? Good, good. Take a look at your driver's license real quick if I could. See, he's right up on that van, man. He was right up on the back end of that van. Hold you over for tailgating. Is this your car? Okay. And yeah, like another example, how that's going to fit into the overall case, the timeline. I couldn't agree with you more. Brian, I know your time is limited, so I want to go to this fourth piece of evidence. Some would say the biggest bombshell in the probable cause affidavit, a piece of evidence that I am not sure how it's ultimately going to play out. And that is according to the affidavit that one of the roommates who was unharmed in the attack says that she may have actually seen the suspect the night of the murders. So the King Road house, three floors, the attacks happened on the second and third floors. One of the surviving roommates, Dylan Mortensen, she has a room, um, told investigators that she woke up around 4 a.m. to hear some sort of noise, thought she heard Kaylee Gonzalez say that there's someone here. Uh, Mortensen claimed that she, she opened the door, she heard someone crying, and a male voice saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. She then said that she opened the door again after she heard more crying and saw a person wearing Black clothing and a mask that covered their mouth and nose walking towards her. Didn't recognize the person. Thought he was maybe five foot ten or taller. Male. Not very muscular, but athletically built. And one of the key identifiers that he had bushy eyebrows. And so yeah. she says that she was frozen in shock. Went back into her room. 911 wasn't called till the next day. There's been a lot of criticism. Uh, and I think unfair criticism about Dylan Mortensen and um, Bethany Funk. You know, about what happened. Their role that they played. How do you think that they're going to be witnesses at this upcoming trial? Because there's a lot of pressure on them to testify, and there's already a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you said. I really feel for them. I I, I hate, you know, the articles that come out that are critical of them because I can't imagine being in their situation. And also, like, going back to the point of what we said about it being a party house, and, you know, they're all in college, and there were people coming and going from that house all the time. Like, you know, did she know that? that he was a, you know, the person that was the murderer. I mean, or did she just think there was a creepy guy walking in the house and was she half asleep? Had they been out drinking? Who knows? Um, but yeah, she gave kind of that vague description. The bushy eyebrows was, um, was, you know, one of the more descriptive things that she said. Uh, and she, you know, that we had no preliminary hearing in this case because it was a grand jury indictment. So we haven't actually heard from her. Um, like on the witness stand, we haven't been able to, you know, read the, the statements that she gave police besides just the basics and the probable cause there. Remember, there was that issue where um, they wanted to try to call her in to be interviewed and she made some kind of deal with the public defender to they went out and talked to her out of state where she was staying. So she's clearly got a story that she is telling um, and an account of what happened that she is telling that we don't know yet besides those basics of what you said. Um, does she have even more specifics that are going to come out? I think that's possible. Um, was it probably just a dark shadowy figure with bushy eyebrows and she was maybe like half asleep and did, you know, I think that that's probably more likely the case because I think if there were more, you know, important descriptive elements, I would, I would have thought they would have put that in the probable cause to kind of meet it up a little bit. But again, another one of the things that I'm super fascinated with that we just don't have a lot of info on yet. 
And look, I'll tell you, I'm concerned that even though she could be compelled to testify, she may try every which way not to. This is we've heard reports that she's switched universities, that she's racked with survivor's guilt. There's all this online pressure. You mentioned what happened with, you know, the defense coming to question her. If she goes on that stand, the defense is going to intensely question her. And I I just she's in such a sensitive state. Do you think there's a possibility that the prosecution, with all the other evidence they have, they may not? Ask her as a witness. I mean, she's important, but they may not want to do that to her. I think it's possible. I think they probably will, though. I mean, that's just my feeling. Um, and I also wonder if some of the reporting is over. I mean, obviously, she has survivor's guilt and is going through right. hell. But, you know, I've talked to some family members of the victims who have been in touch with her, who, you know, they've spoken with her. You know, I don't know if some of that is being a little overplayed in terms of her, you know, basically just being this like basket case or something like I, you know, I, I think she's obviously going through it, but I don't, I haven't done any reporting where I've found out that she is like, you know, just unable to speak kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's fair. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, Brian, before we let you go, these were like, I would say four of the biggest pieces of evidence against Brian Koberger. How much more do you think they have against him prosecutors that we just don't know about yet? You touched upon it a little bit, but is there something from their searches of his property or his belongings that you think we don't know about yet that could play a critical role in the upcoming trial? You know, I think there's going to be, um, I really think there's going to be other bombshell evidence. I really do. Um, like, you know, we've heard the reporting about him going through the trash with the gloves on. Like, I think some of that stuff is going to come out officially. Um, I just think there's a lot of like, I think they laid out the basics and there's going to be a lot of detail. Um, and I, I just, I think back to even like the Vallow trial, there were like a few bombshells that came out there that that had never surfaced until the trial. Like, I, I really think that's going to happen, um, in this case. And I also think we're going to see bombshells from the defense. I mean, I think, you know, he's got a very capable attorney. I mean, I go to almost every hearing. Um, she's a smart woman, you know, she's not like, I mean. they're, you know, they're coming up with things too, I think, behind the scenes. Um, So I I, I go back to the genetic genealogy. I'm very interested to see the way that plays out. I mean, you're a lawyer, maybe you could explain this a little better, but like, um, like if they can poke holes in that, what does that mean? Does that mean that all the evidence that they figured out because of the genetic genealogy could possibly be thrown out? Like they seem to be very focused on that IgG right now. Um, well, the, which the, the I think part, is going to yeah, the part that I still am not clear about is how it was used to pinpoint Koberger. I know they say it wasn't used as a basis for a search warrant. I just don't understand what the connection was, and that has to be clarified. So, if the defense can poke holes yeah. and like the linkage of evidence and the chain of evidence, and we call it like fruit of the poisonous tree. Um, that is something that was definitely going to be explored. And, and look, I, I think it's going to be a fascinating trial between the prosecution and the defense, we're kind of give a little bit of a sampling of it. Um, and, you know, with your terrific reporting, Brian, we're going to probably find out more details before a jury is even sworn in. So Brian Enton out in Idaho, thank you so much. And as always, good to see you and great reporting. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody, that is all we have for you right now here on Sidebar. Thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Weber. Speak to you next time.